Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This episode is being recorded on Monday, March 19th, 2018. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. We are here live from the Shop Talk Show in Las Vegas and are at one of the hottest parties at Shop Talk, Scott Silverman and Alan Dick's Commerce Next Party. This party is a who's who of the digital commerce crowd. A couple of housekeeping things before we jump into a visit with one of our guests here who we plucked out of the party. Uh, so a uh, little thank you for the folks at Commerce Next. They wanted us to let you know that retailers and brands at scale can apply for a complimentary pass for the Commerce Next conference. That's going to be the summit for next level customer acquisition held July 25th and 26th in New York City. The show is a combination of strategic keynotes from the likes of 1-800-Flowers and Under Armour, and then also tactical information from Amy Africa and Facebook Facebook expert Emily Hickey. They're also starting something called the Nexties, which is a peer-reviewed award program. If you're interested in learning more about that, go to commercenext.com. Jason, we're excited to have on the show Joe Megabo. Joe has had a storied 20-year history in retail and e-commerce, including on the retail side, American Eagle Outfitters, Expedia, and Hotels.com. Then he has been on the vendor side, like you and I are today, over at Tea Leaf, IBM, and is currently Operations Advisor with Advent International. That's a private equity firm that has a portfolio of retailers, including Lululemon. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thank you. Appreciate you plucking me out of the party. Uh, we're, we were thrilled to get you. Uh, so, Joe, usually we start out the show by uh, kind of getting a quick rundown on uh, the guest background and how you came into the e-commerce industry. Uh, in your case, this could be a, sort of a long answer. Okay. I'll try not to make it too long. I've uh, been, in, been in the Internet, or really web space, since, uh, since it began. I actually started as an engineer, so I, I find some of us in the e-commerce space came up from more of the traditional retail merchandising route. Others came up the technical route. I, I came up the technical route. And uh, I was in the web early days. I, uh, a good friend of mine and I worked in an advanced technology group for a manufacturer, actually, uh, uh, in upstate New York. And in those days, we, uh, we used to come into work every day with one question we'd ask each other. Have you found any new websites? Because we'd been to all of them. <laughs> and we, we literally had, on our little modems at the time, hitting uh, the, the early days of the web. So, uh, yeah, I've been fighting the fight on trying to educate companies and organizations on what this thing is about and how to, uh, how to embrace it as something other than uh, a sideshow novelty since, uh, since it began. Uh, but I... Uh, I uh, Ended up in uh, management consulting for a number of years, helped launch an e-commerce practice for one of the big uh, big five consulting firms, uh, ended up at an interesting little startup, a company called Tea Leaf Technology. Tea Leaf, back in the day, was way ahead of its time, but we, we realized early on that just basic sort of numerical tracking of what pages you had been on, you know, what, what's often called as weblogs, just wasn't enough for truly understanding 
the the user experience, the customer experience, and and we had come up with some novel technology to allow you to see everything that was happening to the customer. And and in retail, it's not that different than say going into the store and walking the floor. Something any good retail executive does. They go in and watch the customers and see what's going on and see what's working and what's not and speak with them. And there really wasn't an analog for that online. So we we built some initial technology to do that. For me personally, what was amazing about it is for years working with hundreds of, of transactional companies, I got kind of a uh, front row seat on seeing what really worked and what really didn't, whether we're talking human factors, human psychology, understanding why is it that so many websites at the time just kind of sucked and that it was just really hard to get things done, friction, issues getting in the way, as, as a lot of the stuff was built by engineers, not by people who understood humans. So uh, did that for a lot of years, ended up at Expedia for six years, uh, running a, a number of things, ultimately running the uh, Expedia.com U.S. business, uh, American Eagle Outfitters for three years, running digital there, uh, really at their transitionary period of being a great brick-and-mortar store, but uh, understanding not only getting e-commerce right, but truly leaning into an omnichannel experience, which I'm uh, happy to chat with you guys about. And uh, did a, for about a year, did an interesting startup with uh, Joyous, a uh, video-based e-commerce retailer. And what I loved about that was the focus was bringing the humanity online, just how do you actually help understand what makes a product great outside of the traditional just grid and content view of, of products, uh, which we ended up uh, selling the company and uh, doing advising and consulting now. That's awesome. Uh, a nice, concise recap of an amazingly uh, uh, rich career. Um, uh, Tea Leaf is a super exciting to me because uh, for the listeners that aren't familiar, it was a real game changer. Like Essentially, it records sessions so that uh, a, a site team can watch shopper behavior for uh, sort of learning about conversion optimization and, and opportunities to improve things and also for troubleshooting problems. So before that, like, your sales would be way down on a promotion day, and you, you, you really had no way to know. You could look at the metrics and see that nothing converted, but you really had no way to see that, like, you were losing customers at this form or at the... Yeah, we... And it was interesting. We... Like, I stumbled onto some insights, just, again, trying to figure out why did conversion not hit the numbers we wanted. Like, one of the early observations we had, I, we ended up creating a, a, a KPI around this. We called it PSR, Purchase Success Rate. And it turned out we were looking at, this was in my, in my travel days, but it's, it works in, in retail as well. We knew what the fall-off was in the traditional funnel. I mean, when you attack a f- conversion rate in the, in the funnel... We knew that they were getting to the last step in the process, but the fallout, you'd expect if someone's gone all the way through the checkout process that you'd have a very high percentage of people who then complete the transaction. And, and it was uh, it was not a, the high percentage we thought it should be. So why are people dropping out? And uh, what no one had figured out at the time and what we stumbled into by looking at this more complete view of the data is it turned out people were, in fact, trying to transact. We just weren't letting them. And whether, which means the, the transaction was failing. And it was for a whole lot of reasons. Account failure or the credit card not being processed or incorrect information on doing the verification on the credit card. And, and, and it netted out to you know, somewhere between one in five and, and one in four people. So between 20 and 25% of the people. I mean, think about this. You've walked into a store. You've browsed around. You've found something you want to buy. You've actually gone through the process. You've gone up to the POS. 
you've gone through this, you know, and online it's much more challenging. My, my home address and my information, my credit card, you've typed all this in and you've actually clicked the button, complete transaction, the please take my money, I want to do business with you. And the response was, no, you know, no soup for you. You know, it's, and it's, it's, it's crazy. And, and the recovery rate on this was very low as well. And, you know, step one in, in, in sort of fixing things is acknowledging the problem. And we were measuring the wrong thing. We didn't even realize that was a failure to measure. And, you know, we've, we, uh, it turns out you never get to 100% purchase success rate. Some people will always have credit declines. But the idea is how do you actually look at that and make sure anyone who should be completing a transaction let them complete and get that up to the high 90s, um, which took months of work to fix. But no one, again, it's like turning a light on in a closet that's been dark. We had never even seen that. Yeah. And then uh, were you Expedia when they were part of Interactive Corp, or was this? This was shortly after IAC spun, spun out all yeah. the, uh, the uh, travel properties, um, which was a collection at the time of, of Expedia, Hotels.com, Hotwire, TripAdvisor, and since I left, they acquired Orbitz, Travelocity, and a, and a number of the other players. In some ways, the travel world, even then, but even today, was kind of a couple generations ahead of us in the e-commerce world about you know acquiring traffic, monetizing it. It's always amazed me how they're they're totally friendly with each other and always routing traffic through each other. Sure, in a much different world than we would at in e-commerce. You don't see Amazon cycle traffic over to Walmart or something like that. No, and, <laughs> and I think that's actually how I ended up in retail is. I, the one thing about travel, for sure, it's, it's very consumer-centric. I mean, this is about creating great experiences, and it's not about the transaction. I mean, it's ultimately about the trip and the, the, the places you're going. And I, I think uh, some of the, the players have realized, and where I think travel has crossed over into retail, is that, yeah, travel was, from a disruption standpoint, 10 years ahead of retail, but was still deeply consumer-focused. What, what was interesting to me, going from travel to retail, or really it's from marketplace to a, a more vertically entered player, is a lot of the tricks that I expected would work didn't work at all in retail. And it, it was some, some fascinating learning. So you know, one example is the funnel. I mean, the, the oldest trick in the book, if you want to like, make a mark quickly, is start at the bottom of the funnel and start working up. You know, find the people who are the most qualified, most committed, and what's not working. Find that friction, root it out, and it's free money. And in a fashion apparel retailer, like American Eagle, didn't work. And, you know, I mean, you join a new company and you pull out your playbook that always works and it doesn't work. It's sort of this oh crap moment of uh, what have I gotten myself into? And, uh, you know, it turned out in a, in a fashion business, it's an upside down funnel. The consideration where they fall out is at the top of the funnel. It's discretionary spend. I'm trying to decide, I need a new pair of pants. I need a new top. What am I going to buy? Yeah, you, you hope you have loyal fashion brand followers, but the reality is even your most loyal customers still don't exclusively shop with you. So when you're in that consideration set, you're at the top of the funnel, they're deciding, hey, what's new, what's fresh, what's out there? That's when the fallout occurs. By the time they're at the last step of checkout, they've decided, I'm giving you my money. This is the, the transaction I want. And if it doesn't work, it turns out they'll actually, it's a different elasticity curve. They'll try again. They'll go to the store. They'll call the call center. You know, they'll, they'll, there's a much higher probability you'll get this sale. But then the flip side happens, which is at the top of the funnel, if you're not getting it right, 
especially if you're vertically integrated, if you're the only place they're going to buy the product, that's where it really matters. And we ended up switching everything around and saying, how do we make sure we're educating on the brand and the product and getting to the right information without relying on associates and stores? Because that's where the fallout was occurring. It's a fascinating difference. So it's more detailed product pages, more serendipitous discovery stuff at the top to help people self-educate? Yeah, I partly. I um. I look to stores a lot for inspiration, and it's kind of, you know, as a digital guy, I think it's easy to fall into, hey, we don't need stores, or, you know. but there's a lot about stores that work really, really well and have for decades that I have yet to see online replicate. The bigger shopping cart? <laughs> the, well, <laughs> although interestingly there, I, um, I was fascinated when I joined that, that a lot of the apparel companies use the notion bag and not shopping cart, and I was frustrated by this. Um, I actually sat down to prove that we were getting it wrong, and then I discovered every apparel company used bag, Um, which I think it's all just a bunch of silliness. It doesn't really matter. But but if you walk into a retail store, there are people there. There are associates. There are customers. And you get a vibe from this within seconds. You know if you walk into a restaurant or a store if you're in the right place. How? I mean, if, if... if you're a straight-laced person and you walk in and it's a bunch of bikers, you know, wearing leather and whatever, you're, you're like, this is not my scene. It, it, or you walk into a place that's supposedly popular and it's empty, and you see this. What are people shopping? What are they buying? What are the associates doing? How are they engaging? Is it is it a heavy sale? Is it inclusive? Is it exclusive? And you pick this up almost free. Online, it's kind of like saying, find me my flagship store, perfect inventory positions, perfectly assorted, perfect graphics and displays, but you walk in at 2 a.m. on a Sunday when nobody's there, you're on your own. And that's that's most shopping online. And there's a huge gap in helping people discover and the serendipity of shopping that has just not been figured out. So do you feel like, have you run into any tactics that you think partly address that? Because it's... For sure. I I think, and it's all just little windows into the human psychology to try to solve these things. And uh, and sometimes it can be in very subtle ways. One of the biggest lifts we got back in my travel days, we we called it a sense of urgency messaging. But the idea was you're not alone. And part of the insight came from the number one call to the call center was a simple question that needed to be answered was just, is this hotel room going to be okay? Just, it's a big expense. It's, you know, if you have a bad hotel, it's kind of ruins your vacation. And we, we put these little pop-ups on the screen, which were just 10 people are viewing this hotel right now. 15 people have booked this hotel in the last 24 hours, the last hour. One room left. One room left, which is sense of urgency. But one room left means it's popular. People are here right now. And it was just anything to give that same replication of that store experience of it's popular. You walk into a store and there's a popular item on the rounder at the front or on display and there's only one left in your size and your style. What do you do? You grab it off the rack and you hold it. You may not buy it, but it is my option to choose. I'm going to hang on to this thing until I decide I don't want it. So how do you create that same sense? But but again, that requires being there and seeing other people around and knowing the scarcity of the item. How do you create that same sense online? So, I mean, that's just one example of like a digital proxy for creating that that we've done. Yeah, it it, it is interesting. I, I call it the sort of first shopper problem. Because everyone that comes to an e-commerce site feels like the first shopper that's ever been on that site. Like, there's to your point, there's no footsteps of those previous customers. 
uh, I started my career in brick and mortar retail, and I was lucky enough to work with this uh, legendary visual merchant, this guy named Joe Washier, and he used to do the most amazing product displays, um, all with like way higher conversion than any of his peers. And uh, the the coolest thing he ever taught me is like you do this beautiful visual display and then the last thing you do before you open the store is you randomly take three SKUs off that display because no one wants to walk in and buy you know take that first SKU off the pyramid and feel like they're the first one to make this risky purchase they want to feel like man there was just a customer here ahead of me and grabbed it um there's this, uh, they're out of business now, sadly, but uh, Jack Threads, mm-hmm. they used to have one of my favorite features. They used to uh, expose their, their like, high-level analytics on the product detail pages. Right. So like, you could literally see like 5,000 people looked at these trousers and 1,000 of them bought them. Yeah. I, it, I, again, it's just trying to replicate. I, you, you talk about product displays. I think another interesting test we did that worked out rather well. So we... Um, there's very tight control, especially from the merchants and the product owners, on how you display product online. I mean, you want this to be the best presentation of the product. And whether it's laydowns or lifestyle shots or on body, but how, how do you really bring this product to life and make it be true to the brand and true to the product? But the challenge is, it's a, you know, it, that often is very aspirational. It's a reach, and people want to know, how's it going to look on me? And in a store, again, you get that for free because other people are in the store wearing the product, whether it's real humans who are associates or whether it's other customers. So you get a sense of how the product wears. So online, what you often have is you know, social feeds. So you're getting photos posted to Instagram and, you know, again, permission-based marketing. Tag my brand, include me in the conversation, get it up there. But this stuff is often relegated to a blog or a style board or somewhere off on the side where if you're true to be that brand customer to look, it's interesting. But it's very disjointed from the shopping experience. So the idea was, how could we make this part of the product experience, which means on the product detail page, not only do I see the great produced merchant-led photography, but let me see the real user photographs as well, which meant tagging them, flowing them through, so they came into the product detail page. But it created tension inside of retailers because now I'm giving up control on how the product gets presented. It's now, yeah, and not every real consumer truly represents that idealistic brand standard. And, and how do you reconcile that? But what was interesting is it kind of created just, and these are my words, but kind of a bookend of, of approachability. You've got the very perfect, on-point brand, beautiful people who show the product and the aspirational look. You know, I want to look more like that. But then you saw real-world people who showed you this was approachable, achievable. I can do that. If they can wear that, I can wear that, and I'm going to look good. And, and sort of giving it that grounding and the, the real, you know, the, this is real people wearing real product alongside having sort of what with the vision of what you want to look like turned out to work really well. And, uh, you know, and, and to change how we approach things. And the, and the idea was truly let's get this real user photography on as many product pages as we could and do that in an automated, systematic way. But again, to me, it's just, it's just tapping into that human psychology of bringing that real-world experience into the online experience. You guys were very early on mobile, too, uh, because your audience being millennials was, like, really pushing that hard. Any interesting insights that you learned, kind of? We we did many, many, many. Um, and, and I've been I've been passionate about mobile. So I Expedia, I uh, 
we, we had the first transactional non-retail site on Hotels.com, which we launched on the iPhone when it came out. We had one of the first 500 apps in the App Store. So, I mean, I, I've, just, I've been passionate about this for, for a lot of years. Um, but yeah, in mobile, it can even be silly things that I would have never guessed. So we've got a, this is American Eagle, we have an app. It does pretty well. It's, it's our loyalty program. I mean, the app is used by our most loyal customers. And uh, my, my head of mobile at the time, who's been in the mobile space since, since the old feature phone days, he, uh, he's hammering me for, let's put radio in our app. Music is a big part of our brand ethos, our brand experience. It's in our stores. We had a partner who could, relatively low cost, take our weekly playlist and basically give it to our customers as a gift, you know, sort of free Spotify-like playlist uh, that was just built into our app. And it just didn't seem that important to me, so I kept fighting him. And and finally, his name's Jeremy. He he just wore me down. He's like, I got it. I've actually already done sort of the, the due diligence. You just got to say yes. And it's, it's going to be like a couple hours of work and we have it in the app. And we put it in the app and uh, some amazing things happened. First of all, we got a bunch of feedback, which blew me away. Just customers loved it. The associates, <laughs> they, they hated it, but for reasons that were, were comical to me. They loved the music as well, and they said, and they turned out they were good customers of ours, and they used the app, and they said, I feel like I can never leave the store, store now. now. Yeah, you know, why, why are you making me always be in the store? And I'm like, oh, that's, a, that's actually a win. You know, that's just kind of hidden in a complaint. But here was the interesting thing. When we started getting into the metrics, and we, we were very religious in looking uh, at, the, at the metrics and how well the app was performing, the uninstall rate dropped in half. So we would look at like cohorts of seven days out, how many people still had the app installed. Dropped in half. We had twice as many people who had the app installed. Our engagement rates, the average session durations, everything, we were seeing massive improvement, which also meant our rank improved. And and this was fascinating to me because the number of downloads weren't changing. And, you know, there had always been sort of thoughts on, hey, is it just about downloads that drives rank? No, just engagement, uninstall rate, you know, basically CSAT. Just, it was a better app for our customers in some non-transactional or relevant ways. And we were not only rewarded in better app experience, but we were rewarded in rank. And guess what? Rank drives more downloads, it drives more engagement, and there's a virtuous cycle there. So, yeah, it's just, which just comes back to getting it right for your customer, understanding what it is they're looking for and giving them what they need. Cool. So we, we have some you know, beginning marketers on the show. Talk a little bit about cohort analysis. Um, you know, I think that's an interesting topic, and you probably have, you know, you've probably done enough of this. You probably have like your favorite view of that. So maybe, so pretend you're talking to someone that you know is just getting an e-commerce. They're they're somewhat technical on the marketing. Explain cohort analysis, and we can use the app kind of. You know, I know there's a lot of lessons. Explain that, and then maybe talk about some best practices you've seen. Sure. I in in. I may take it up a level and just say, foundationally, before you even get into cohort analysis, it means do I have clean data to understand who my customer is and how can I start? Because the goal, cohorts, just it's a fancy way of just looking at groups of people and comparing them, typically over time, so you can understand did something work or not. Um, but I, I, you can charge more for a cohort. You can than charge you can more for a group for a of customers. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I mean, nothing scares me more than making really good decisions on bad data. And I, I think part of the challenge, and I think this is getting harder, not easier, is 
how do you actually track who that customer is? To do a cohort means I can say, I know I've got user X, mm-hmm. I've got Bob or Susie out there, and who is Bob and Susie, and what have they done so I can track them over time and compare them to another Bob or another Susie. But in a world where I've got more people going to mobile, but still transacting on desktop, I mean, I mean think about this. Most people's mobile conversion is a half to a quarter of what their desktop site is. And if I were just you know, basic math, and oh, by the way, mobile's now 50% of more of my traffic and growing. If the majority of my business is going to a channel that's converting at a half or a quarter of my traditional business, math would say my business is going in the toilet. Yeah. But it's not. So there's a paradox here, which is why am I not saying my business completely fall apart where these basic metrics are true? And, and really what it is is you've got an attribution problem. If people are coming to your site three times before purchase, now they're going twice on mobile and once on desktop. And oh, by the way, my desktop conversion, you know, which I attributed to patting on my back, I'm so good at desktop conversion now, look how great I am. No, it's just, it's getting artificially inflated. Mobile's getting penalized for not being able to connect the dots because the way most of these measurement techniques look is where did I see you first? And where the transaction occur? And if you can't connect the dots and say, hey, I saw you on mobile, but I don't know who you are, and I can find ways to tag or mark you, but then you transact in a different channel where that marker doesn't cross, I've completely lost my ability to attribute. Mm -hmm. And this is mobile to desktop, it's cross-channel, it's digital to store, it's, these, these are challenges. So I think part of the cohort analysis and where it often lands on the transactional side is how good am I at being able to connect the dots? How do I entice my customers to self-identify or show themselves, whether it be coming in from email because they know who you are then, whether it be getting them to log in, getting them to engage with a promotion. So long before you get into cohort, I mean, you're talking about guidance. I mean, make sure you actually are thinking about first, how am I getting consistent measurement? How am I attacking some of the consumer data problems? Which is a really big deal. If you can get there and now you have data to play with, I think cohort, I mean, you've got basically a few tricks that you can do on testing things. You can test things at the same time. Let me get two different audiences information, you know, variations and see how they compare to each other. Sometimes that's not practical or you want to test over a long period of time. So cohorts can be great on, hey, if I give someone an offer on their first transaction, how often do I see them come back and buy again 30 days later, 60 days later? And cohorts can be in a very efficient way to have a quantitative way to look at that over time. Very cool. Uh, and you you touched on another topic that's very near and dear to my heart when we were talking about attribution, uh, omni-channel attribution. And yeah. so I, I, certainly I think of uh, American Eagle owns a lot of your own stores. That website, I presume, was sort of the flagship store uh, and the front door to many of those physical stores often. Like, did you guys implement any kind of omni-channel attribution, or how did you think about that? We... We did a lot around omnichannel. The, the marketing attribution was trickier for us. Um, and, and some of it was just reframing the question. I, um, you know, let's just say round numbers that we were doing 25% of our business online, which means, oh, by the way, 75% of our business wasn't online. And if I'm the CFO or I'm an executive at the company and I'm looking at how I'm really thinking about what's really you know, driving my, uh, my quarterly statement, it sure looks like stores still matter a lot more. 
And on a credit card swipe basis, certainly that was mathematically true. But I, I reframed the discussion. We, uh, you know, we, we had cameras in all our stores, and we could track foot traffic into the stores and at the mall level. So I said, what if we looked at this differently and said, look at this from a consumer engagement standpoint? How many people set foot into our stores every day? And how many people set foot in our digital stores every day? Because one thing is certain is if they're not walking into our stores, they're not buying the product. And, uh, you know, and I tried to do apples to apples comparison. Let's look at this US to US, brand to brand, stores don't know uniques, it just knows entities, so let's, let's not, you know, let's take not uniques, just total business. You know, find a way to do as, as, as fair a comparison. And the interesting thing was, it wasn't 75 25 now. It actually flipped, and it was more like 60-40 or 70-30, depending on, on where and how we were looking at it, where the majority of our daily engagement with the brand was actually long past the tipping point and was happening online, mm-hmm. which means you can start doing you know, pretty simple math. The people walking into the store were already online the majority of the time. So it started with just you know, acceptance of that and, and putting it in, in sort of non non-offensive terms that this clearly must be true. And, and that actually was a profound shift for us is beginning to recognize the tipping point isn't still years away when we're at 50% of transactions. The tipping point's already occurred. This is the primary channel for us to reach and engage with the customer. Now, the challenge then is how much math do you want to give it? Because if I were to say, hey, a dollar I spend online fully was realized by the person coming into the store, that also means that store isn't as important as we think it is, and, you know, I'm crediting that sale to, to online, and it, it starts to get very, very tricky in understanding how I'm going to really manage the P&L, where I'm giving the credit, um, and, uh, and it's very hard to prove the numbers flowing through. So, I, it, you know, it becomes a bit of a soft skill, I think, for now, in connecting the dots that way. Where we could measure things, single-use coupon codes and showing where the activation actually occurred, or even just inventory management. I mean, for us, the biggest win on Omnichannel wasn't marketing. It was how we exposed inventory with things like buy online, ship from store, which uh, I'm happy to chat with that if if you're interested. But I mean, that was a massive, massive winner for, uh, for how we thought about Omnichannel. Yeah, so like, what were the big omni-channel experiences that were wins for you? You mentioned ship from store. It's a ship from store for sure was a large one. And, and if you think about it, I mean, we had a couple DCs. It, it, clearance merchandise or discounted merchandise is always very popular, but it's always in limited supply. So the idea that, hey, we have an item that's no longer our, our current set, you can get it at 10 off or 20 off or some slightly discounted rate. It's still a great product and still relatively recent, but it's only available in extra, extra large and extra, extra small in the color I don't want. Mm-hmm. But the idea that we actually have a unit somewhere in our 1,000 stores of that item is pretty high. And at the local store level, which is just you know, a very, very atomic view of managing inventory, you know, whatever assortment they have, they're just going to mark it down. 10 off, 25 off, move it to the back, and, and ultimately, if they can't get it, they're going to liquidate it out of the store. So the idea was just simple. It was, how do we expose all that inventory to anybody anywhere and just map existing inventory, existing supply against existing demand? And uh, it turned out to be, I think, way bigger than any of us realized. When we began, we didn't even know, would we do this in all stores? Or would we only pick a couple hundred stores? And by the time we were done, it was fleet-wide. Every single store became a distribution center. And it was a win-win. We were giving, meeting customer demand on product at a slightly discounted rate, but our margins 
were actually dramatically better because we were able to move stuff much earlier in the in the uh, in the markdown process. And by the way, just even you talk about what's your you know, what's your e-commerce sales. I mean, I, I have a foundational belief that the notion of e-commerce as a PNL will be gone within five years. Mm-hmm. And like to do this omnichannel exercise, we did with buy online, ship from store. So what if you look at a PNL level, what happened? In order to make sure the stores were truly giving appropriate care to these orders, we gave the stores credit for the sale. We wanted them to want these orders and want to fulfill them and do a really great job, which they did on fulfilling it. So they're getting credit for the sale, not .com. What is .com selling? More clearance merchandise. So our margins are actually eroding because we're increasing the frequency of sales that had a clearance item. Let's look at operating costs. We're increasing split ship. And we're shipping more out of stores in general, which just the, the shipping and operating cost of shipping out of stores is more expensive than what we could do at the distribution center. And I had to manage a whole new order management system and all the software and equipment. So my operating costs, my operating margins, my product margins are all getting worse. Sales are getting credited stores, which are looking good. And you know, if you just took a, an e-commerce P&L view, you'd say, this isn't working. But at a company level, I mean, if you think, what's the definition of omni-channel? It's all channels. We were seeing increased sales. We were seeing higher transactions. We were seeing improvement on margins, the lowest liquidation rates. And even at an operating cost level, it was working. But you couldn't look at it on a, on a channel line. And it just comes down to, if I'm standing in a store and they don't have it in stock and I buy it on my mobile phone, is that an e-commerce sale or a store sale? Mm-hmm. If I'm, if I'm mm-hmm. at the store or if I'm on the online store and I buy something that's fulfilled from the store, I pick up a store. Is that an online? Or, it's, it's gotten very, very blurry and it's going to get worse. And I think it's missing the point because the notion of trying to, you know, to create as a channel is, is the antithesis of omnichannel. And from the customer, they don't care. They're just engaging with the brand. It's an eagle sale. Yeah, that's it. So I, I just I, I think it's the wrong question, and, and I think brands are slowly coming to grips with this. I, at Shoplock here, it's one of the most hopeful things I'm hearing is I think brands are finally recognizing this isn't about a different channel or a different approach or a different team. It's how do we really start to take this consumer-centric view around the customer. Cool. Do you think stores last long enough to, to get to this point where they rationalize the being on? Like Toys R Us didn't make it, and, you know, players, I, uh, and a lot of these guys are filing for bankruptcy now. Yeah, I... I don't think stores are dead. I'm very bullish on stores. Mm-hmm. I just think stores are going to be different. I think they're no longer just about convenient places to store inventory and fulfill orders. Um, so I, I think the square footage will change. I think the purpose of discovery and, and the, the serendipity and the experience around brands will change. Um, but I, I think we're, we're social beasts. We're looking for that human connection. We're looking for help. And, and I think associates do a great job. I, I, in the same vein, I'd say online is going to become less mechanistic and we're going to bring more humans in. I, I'm a big fan of things like chat. I, How about I, AR, VR? Do you think we'll be able to stories go totally I, um, virtual reality? Yeah. No, I, I, uh, I think there's going to be opportunities. I, there are categories like furniture that I think are very interesting where, where AR, VR are already starting to take hold and some very interesting companies are getting funding and a good following. Mm-hmm. I think the idea of fit and feel and you know, how that silhouette wears on me and fit intent, I think it's going to be a lot harder in the immediate future to truly do an AR, VR approach to that. Um, but uh, I, I, and again, it, to me, I always go to human. How do we bring that human condition in? 
and we keep running to math problems, and to me, AR, VR is, is a math solution, not a human solution. I'd much rather invest in, I mean, by, by the way, most call centers have conversion rates of 30, 40%. Most e-commerce sites are nowhere near that. If I can get people to call and I can understand how to staff them for selling, not just for service, mm-hmm. that's a ton of opportunity. And same with chat. I mean, as you get into the millennials and the youngers, the, the younger customers, they're very comfortable with chat. Chat's no different than a phone call to them. And if I can engage with them in a helpful way, outfitting, styling, recommendations, wear, use, it works. And it's, it's the same conversations you have in a store, but it requires human beings to know that customer, which means good CRM, good data about the customer, good product and, and training and the associates. You can do that digitally at scale. It's just, it's, lear- you know, it's, it's, it, again, it's blurring who are my associates, where do they sit, how do I train them, because it's not just about that single geography anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe, that's great advice, and it's going to be a great place to end it because it's happened again. We've used up all our allotted time, uh, but we're super grateful for you taking time uh, to sit down and chat with us. And as always, if uh, listeners want to continue the conversation, they're welcome to jump on our Facebook page. If you uh, enjoyed this episode, it's a great time to jump on iTunes and uh, give us that five-star review. Joe, if people want to follow you online, do you have a are you a Twitter or Facebook, LinkedIn? Or? It's, uh, it's my last name. You can find me LinkedIn at both Megabo and Twitter is Megabo, M-E-G-I-B-O-W. Cool. Thanks. We appreciate you taking time out of the party, and you can go have a drink on us. Thank you very much. <laughs> Until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.